Welcome back to the program. Who among us is not multitasking? The idea of watching or working multiple screens is now a term of art. But are the pressures, demands, and distractions of all of that producing an anxiety that has some long-term consequences? Simply viewed as the evolution of our brain and our central nervous system kept pace with our needs, our desires, and our technology. For millennials and digital natives, it may be getting closer. For the rest of us, not so much. So is the answer to become a digital recluse or simply find a way to reconcile the competing demands on our time, our brain, and our body? ABC News anchor Dan Harris thinks he has found a way. Dan Harris is a co-anchor of ABC's Nightline as well as the weekend edition of Good Morning America. He's also the author of a new book entitled 10% Happier, How I Tame the Voice in My Head, Reduce Stress Without Losing My Edge, and found self-help that actually works. A true story. It is my pleasure to welcome Dan Harris to the program. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Great to have you here. From your own personal perspective, uh, all the multitasking, all the pressure, all the stress resulted in in a kind of meltdown that you had on air. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, I had a panic attack on uh, national television in 2004, and the background story of that is, uh, I, th- I think what really was at the root of it was a desire that a lot of uh, your listeners would share, which was uh, to be great at my job. I got to ABC News when I was 28, back in the year 2000, and I looked like I was barely post-pubescent, and I was working with these giants like Diane Sawyer and Peter Jennings, and, and my way of compensating for that was to become a workaholic, and I just threw myself into this job, and, and 9-11 happened, and I volunteered to spend many years overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Middle East, and when I came home from a particularly long stretch of that, I got depressed, and I did a really stupid thing, which is uh, I uh, self-medicated with recreational drugs, and even though I wasn't doing it while I was working, and I definitely wasn't doing it while I was on the air, uh, and even though this was only for a brief period of time, uh, I later learned from my doctor that it raised the level of adrenaline in my brain and basically guaranteed that I had this panic attack in front of 5.019 million people <laughs> in June of 2004. And when I realized what a moron I'd been, I knew I had to make some changes, and that's that journey is what I talk about in the book. And how much of that panic attack, how much of that anxiety and stress was as a result of your own unique personal experience, and how much of it was, in your view, reflective of the pressures both from work and technology that we're all under today? I think uh, that for me, it was actually that situation was a reflection of my personal experiences, but what I learned as a way to deal with it is something that we can all deal with in the in the hectic pace we can all use in the hectic pace of our lives. You know, I found a very simple, scientifically validated way to uh, create a different relationship to that nonstop voice we all have in our head that has us multitasking, which, by the way, is neurologically impossible, and has us reaching into the fridge when we're not hungry, has us losing our temper when, we're, when, when we are only going to regret it later. Uh, so I, I think the, the, the beginning of my journey is pretty personal, but the end of it is totally universal. And it began because you were assigned to cover a religion story for ABC. Yeah, so what happened was after I had this panic attack and I knew that I needed to make some changes in my life, I simultaneously was uh, was assigned to cover religion for ABC News. And uh, I had grown up in a very secular environment, was not uh, a believer 
of any sort. And uh, I learned a lot by covering religion. And I ultimately stumbled upon, uh, through covering religion and then uh, poking around a little bit in self-help, and I ultimately stumbled upon the last thing I ever thought would be useful for me, which was meditation. I always thought meditation was for weirdos, for hippies, people who live in a yurt or collect crystals or, you know, wear little symbols on their fingers. Uh, as it turns out, though, it's just exercise for the brain. And for this skeptical, fidgety anchorman, it's made a big difference. How did you begin to move towards understanding it and later accepting it? But how did it begin for you? Uh, there are a million ways to answer that question. I, I tell the story in the book of this very strange odyssey that I went on because I, I because I was covering religion for ABC News, uh, I was uh, somebody recommended I read a book by a self-help guru by the name of Eckhart Tolle, and you may have heard of him. He sold millions of books. And I, I read the book uh, because I was going to interview him, and I saw a lot of what he was saying was weird and nonsense, but then he also had this diagnosis of the human condition that I thought was totally spot on, which was that we have this voice in our head that has us walking around in a fog of memory about the past, anticipation of the future, never focus on what's actually happening right now, constantly wanting, not wanting, judging, comparing ourselves to other people. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's me. In fact, that's the voice that led me to do drugs and have a panic attack on national television. The problem with Eckhart Tolle was that he described our human condition quite well, but he didn't offer any practical advice. And then that sent me off on a weird journey to try to find practical advice, and I ended up meeting a lot of self-help gurus who were not very helpful. Uh, and then I stumbled upon meditation, and I learned about all this science, and I learned that it doesn't involve wearing robes or sitting cross-legged or believing in anything in particular or lighting incense. It's a very simple, uh, as I said, exercise for the brain. Were you concerned about any of these things that they might take away your edge, your competitive edge in some way? I was absolutely concerned about that. The PR problem that meditation has is it immediately conjures images of unwashed hippies or robe gurus, not people who are you know, commonly associated with high levels of professional achievement. That said, there's a very interesting phenomenon that I discovered as a reporter, which is that there is an elite subculture of extremely effective and successful Americans who are now meditating. I'm talking about the founders of Twitter. I'm talking about the head of Ford Motor Company. I'm talking about executives at Procter & Gamble, Aetna, Google, the U.S. Marines, the U.S. Army, rock stars, doctors, scientists, lawyers. They're doing it because... It, science has shown it helps improve your focus, which is a uh, valuable resource in this age of omni-connectivity, uh, and it can help stop you from being yanked around blindly by your emotions. Talk a little bit about what meditation really is, because as we talk about it, I'm sure in the minds of many, as it was for you initially, it conjures up a whole series of images. Yes, it's not mystical. It does not involve sitting cross-legged, and it does not involve, uh, you know, uh, chanting or, or doing anything that a lot of uh, your listeners might think of as foreign. Here are the three steps. It is extremely, extremely simple. The cliche is it's simple but not easy. Um, step number one, sit down with your spine straight so you don't fall asleep uh, step, and close your eyes. Uh, so that's step number one. Step number two Focus on the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. You don't have to breathe in a special way, but just notice 
where are you feeling your breath? Is it your belly or your stomach, uh, your belly or your nose? Um, and then step number three is the biggie. As soon as you try to start focusing on the simple feeling of your breath coming in and out, you're, you're going to notice that your mind wanders like crazy. Uh, and that is totally natural. So every time you find yourself with your mind having wandered to, what am I going to have for lunch? Why did I say that stupid thing to my boss, et cetera, et cetera? Forgive yourself and bring your attention back to your breath. And every time you do that, every time you catch yourself and, and have the grit to start over, you are breaking a lifetime of habit of walking around in this, this sort of sleepwalking that we do in this fog of memory and anticipation. And you're doing a bicep curl for your brain. And it's been shown over and over and again in the lab and in brain scans to have extremely beneficial impacts on your body and your brain. Is there a universality to this? Does it work for everyone? Uh, I believe that meditation is the next public health revolution and will very soon join uh, brushing your teeth, <laughs> exercise, and taking the medications that your uh, doctor uh, uh, prescribed you in the pantheon of no-brainers, obviously you do it, and if you don't do it, you, you probably feel a little guilty about it. I think this is going to be for everyone. Now, having said that, uh, if you have a, a certain mental health conditions, I think it, it makes sense to consult your doctor first, but that I think is a very, for a very small percentage of the population. I am not a doctor, so I think if you have any concerns that it might interact with one of the pre-existing mental health conditions, it might make sense to ask your doctor, but as far as I know, it is good for everybody, and I've never met anybody who said to me they regret doing it. How has it impacted your work in general, your own happiness, and more importantly, your interaction with technology and the world around you? So look, there's a reason why I call the book 10% Happier. There are all these self-help gurus out there who promise that you can solve all of your problems uh, through the power of positive thinking. That's baloney. It's just not going to happen. Uh, and I think we're ready for a more mature discussion in America about how to get uh, to, to boost our well-being. Um, it's not going to regrow your hair. It's not going to make you taller. Um, but And it's not going to help you win the lottery, but it might make you significantly happier. And that's what it's done for me. So I find that I'm much better able to focus on my work. I find that instead of losing my temper uh, with my colleagues or with my wife, I can see, oh, okay, I'm starting to feel angry right now, but I don't need to take the bait. So I am, I am uh, less yanked around by my emotions, a, a term I used a little bit earlier in this chat. Mm -hmm. And as for uh, this multitasking issue that you began our discussion with, I just want to point out that that is a computer term. Computers have multi, multi, uh, many processors. Humans have one processor, the brain. Multitasking is a lie we tell ourselves. It is impossible. So in my life, what I've tried to do is to do one thing at a time, finish one task at a time, do it well, and then move on to the next thing. Now, obviously, I work in an incredibly hectic, high-paced environment. Sometimes multitasking is uh, unavoidable. But to the best of my ability, I do try to avoid it, and I find that it's improved the quality of my work and made me happier. Because, by the way, you might think you're successfully multitasking, but studies show that, that people are happiest when they're doing one thing at a time and they're focused on it. We hear so much today about millennials in particular, but others as well, looking at three or four different screens at the same time. They're watching a video, they're watching television, they're on Twitter or Facebook, that there is this multi-screen dimension that we see today. Yeah, I do it myself, and uh, it's not a good idea. Um, it's, it's, 
you're creating bad habits, you're making yourself less happy, and you're doing each one of those activities uh, less successfully and effectively. The studies show that every time you toggle between one activity and another, your brain takes time to ramp up back to the level of focus it was at when it was doing the prior activity, and you lose productivity. Uh, this is not up for debate anymore. We now know this in a pretty definitive way. Multitasking is a waste of time. You think you're doing things more efficiently, but you're not. Uh, and uh, I think giving that up will make a big difference. And what, what I found is that meditation really, really helps show you how to focus, and it can help it helps you be more self-aware. You can see that when you're unfocused, it feels bad. Is there a danger that people that have some success from it will become overly militant about it in terms of, of trying to get others to do similar things? Yes, there is. And and there's nothing more annoying than somebody <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> evangelizing to you about meditation. And I will tell you that I, while I'm comfortable going on the radio or television, uh, you know, shouting about the benefits of meditation, I do not evangelize one-on-one. I, my wife does not meditate. Um, because I, I mean, she, she knows it's good for her. She knows she should, but she just hasn't ever really gotten around to it. And I do not pressure her because I know that is a shortcut to her not never wanting to do it. So yeah, I think militancy is a bad idea. You know, this is something for you. It can really help you, but, uh, and, and, and there's no problem telling other people you do it and you've derived benefits from it, but I think lecturing about it can be a little bit obnoxious. And let me just say one last thing, because I think people in your audience may be thinking to themselves, okay, well, I get it. I get that it's good for you, but I'm too busy. Well, I, I think five minutes a day is enough. I think if you have five minutes where you do this, um, you will change the relationship to the voice in your head, which is often the puppeteer that has you doing the things you, you are least proud of. And, uh, it, you know, I, I'm pretty confident you will derive benefits from five minutes a day. And if you don't, send me a note on Twitter and tell me I'm a moron. But I, <laughs> I don't think you'll be sending that note. One of the things with respect to this nexus between technology and all of this is that there are apps for meditation. I find that hard to deal with on a certain level. So do I. I'll be honest with you. I, I find it, it, is, it seems contradictory, but there is one app I can actually unreservedly recommend. Uh, it's called Headspace. I have nothing to do with it. Uh, I'm not recommending something in which I have a financial interest or anything, but I am friendly with the guys who run it. And one of them is a deeply, deeply trained meditation teacher. And he really knows what he's talking about. And he's funny and he's cool. And he's not trying to start a religious group or anything like that. All he's doing is giving you the tools to do a workout for your own brain. And uh, I find this app to be very, very useful uh, and it doesn't encourage you to multitask in any way. It's interesting if we look at Silicon Valley talking about technology that there's a huge amount of meditation that goes on there. And in fact, many of the people working in Silicon Valley would agree with you that multitasking really doesn't work and, and really they need to stay focused. And yet the products they're creating are what's leading to everyone else multitasking. Isn't that an interesting paradox? Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I think I, I think it's unfair to blame the product. I think it's our use of the product. We have gotten into this era where we, you know, are telling ourselves this lie over and over again that we can use these technologies 
to boost our productivity in ways that go beyond what we're actually capable of as humans. And I think it's an interesting canary in the coal mine that the, these people who are developing these technologies are the most sensitive to the fact that you actually do your best work when you're doing one thing at a time. And it's really telling that, uh, that uh, Silicon Valley has adopted meditation in such a robust way. In fact, Wired Magazine referred to new meditation as the new caffeine. There's also this sense of the addictive quality of multitasking and even the addictive quality of that vo- those voices inside your head and that adrenaline rush and the dopamine rush we get from doing so many of these things. Yeah, I think it's true. You know, we, we're getting little pellets of pleasure every time we get a tweet, every time we get an email, every time we uh, check our, uh, uh, our Facebook status and somebody's liked something we've posted, absolutely, these, you know, they're, they're a little, they're the dopamine rush. There's no, no, no question about it. And I don't think, I don't, I'm not trying to be overly militant about this. I do think, I, I certainly multitask once in a while. Um, uh, I just think that it's important to be, to be aware of the fact that you will do your best work when you're doing one thing at a time, when you are, as they say in sports, in the zone. There's a reason why that term has this sort of mythic importance, because that's when we feel our best. That's when we do our best. And to the best of your ability, I think you want to create an environment where you can be in the zone. Now, I know that a lot of your listeners are going to be saying to yourself, look, given how much I have to do, I got to get the kids to soccer practice. I got to you know, answer the email from my boss. Um, I need to get dinner ready. There's no question there are times in our life when we have to multitask. Uh, I don't think I'm not, I don't want to be overdoing it here. I just think that the extent to which you can organize your life, especially in the moments when you have to get something done around trying to do one thing at a time, you'll, you'll be glad you did. If you hadn't discovered meditation post panic attack, how do you think your life would be different today? I think that on the surface, my life would be exactly the same, which is that I have this extraordinarily privileged life. I have, what I view as the best job in the entire universe. Uh, I, I married extremely well. I have a beautiful wife and great friends. I think all of that would be true, except for I would be letting, as I used to do, the stress in my life get me, make me more miserable than it needs to. If stress and suffering is part of every life. We live in an impermanent universe where nothing lasts. We, sorry to say it, are all going to die, and everybody we know is going to die as well. So life is filled with, with trauma and with loss. And the, the, the issue is, are you going to make the suffering that is a part of every life worse than it needs to be or just what it is? And what I've learned how to do is to not, um, to the, 10% of the time at least, to not make things worse than they need to be and to enjoy the good things more than I used to, instead of just rushing off to the next thing. Now, how many good meals have we had in our lives? Are we ever satisfied? No, we're always looking forward to the next good meal. How many vacations? Same thing. I've learned to enjoy what I'm doing and stop thinking about the next thing. Um, again, not 100% of the time, but much more than I used to. And like I said, I, the, the reason why I named the book 10% Happier is because I don't want to hold myself out as some paragon of perfection. If you had my wife on the line right now, she would talk to you for an hour about the way in which I am still stupid. Um, But I am much better than I used to be. Dan Harris, the book is 10% Happier, How I Tamed the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Works. Dan Harris, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. 
It was great. It was totally my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 